Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're going to talk about pacemakers. Yes. So these little medical devices that are incredible. I mean, these are life-saving devices that have made countless people's lives better. It's, Impossible. It's, <laughs> it's when when the electrical impulses of your heart are less good than they should be. Wait, whoa, um, whoa, whoa. Electrical impulses. Lauren, now you're talking crazy talk. What do you uh, mean electrical impulses? That's that's how the heart works. There's that's crazy. There, we, we, we have natural pacemakers and sometimes they, they work less well than others. But so, yeah, so, so pacemakers are, are small devices that are implanted nearish the heart in the sure. general yeah, chest area. Chest cavity, shoulder, abdomen, somewhere around mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. They, they use low energy electrical impulses to help control any abnormal heart rhythms, um, sometimes called arrhythmias. Arrhythmias. Yeah, had, Thank you. I had an arrhythmia as a child. Oh, did you? Yep. I had an arrhythmia and a heart murmur. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. In the bad way. So Excellent. anyway, yes, arrhythmias. Uh, so those can be that your heart is beating either too fast, too slow, or irregularly. And um, there are more long words for all of those things. Which right. I'm yeah, not... there's there's a tachycardia. There and, you go, yeah. And bradycardia. Yes. So those are the the two. Uh, so bradycardia is if it's beating too slowly, mm-hmm. and uh, tachycardia Ta- is when it's too quickly. Sure. There's also other conditions that can... Uh, that can wrap up into needing a pacemaker, a.k.a. Um, atrial fibrillation, mm-hmm. in which the upper chambers of the heart kind of quiver instead of really contracting. Yeah. So in order for you to really understand what we're talking about here, the, the heart is divided up into four chambers, right? Right. The left and right atria, which are the upper chambers, and the uh, left and right ventricles, which are the lower chambers. Right. So the upper chamber chambers, the atria, when they when they contract, they force blood down into the ventricles. Which then, when they contract, force it throughout the rest of the body. Right. And so the the combination of these two contractions are what we think of as the heartbeat. The whole lub dub. Lub dub is yeah. that. Yeah. So that's you know the lub, the atria, and the dub, the ventricles. So, you know that there's just plenty of room for romance. But you, so if, if if one of these is is not working out correctly, then it screws up a, the entire process. It's a huge process. problem, right? right? So if the atria are doing this fibrillation where they are quivering instead of beating, then it's not providing the the right amount of blood to the ventricles to pump it through the rest of the body. That's all obviously an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's another one too, right? There's also heart block in which the electrical signal is slowed or disrupted as it moves through the heart. So again, a problem with uh, actually the the signal reaching the place where it needs to go, mm-hmm. so that you have a, a healthy heartbeat. Right. It's it's like if the cover on your wire is a little bit screwy. And, oh, gotcha. You know, yeah. something, something to that extent. Uh, except the wire is your heart and you need that wire right. pretty badly. Yeah. And it's, it's um, unless you're the Tin Man, you pretty much need one. And the, these conditions can be caused by all kinds of disease and other wackiness. Yeah, um, they could be, it could be an inherited condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be. Uh, after a heart attack, if, if a heart attack damages the muscle. Right. Yeah. There are injuries that can end up injuring the heart as a as a result. Yeah. So there's lots of different ways that this could happen, including things like just coming out of a surgery that's unrelated to your heart. That oh, can right. happen. Sure. Too. Sure. Absolutely. OK. So so what happens when your heart lacks rhythm? Uh, you can no longer do really crazy dances like the electric slide. OK. True enough. However, it mostly means that your body might not be getting enough blood, which would cause uh, tiredness, lightheadedness, breathlessness, even like fainting, organ damage, and and can potentially even lead to death if it goes um, un 
Unchecked. Unchecked. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're talking about very serious stuff. Now, a healthy adult has uh, a heart rate at rest that's what between sixty and one hundred beats per minute, something like that. Yep, yep. So, um, and mine's on the high end, which yeah. is actually not great. It means that honestly, that Jonathan needs to exercise more so that I have a healthier cardio life, and that's something that I am working on because it's a concern, right? I'm mm-hmm. getting I'm getting to a certain age. Uh, Physically, if not mentally or emotionally. So I need to prepare for that. Generally, a slower heartbeat within that range is is ideal. Um, and healthy heartbeats are regular because we have, like I said earlier, those built-in pacemakers. Those are the sinoatrial. I said that right. Yes, yes. nodes, yes. which sit at the, um, at, the, at the upper right atria. A- okay, gotcha. So yeah, atrium. so it's it, this is kind of the signal that uh, lets the atria know to, to contract. So... Once that signal goes through to contract uh, the atria, what happens then? Like, how does it then move on to the ventricle system? Um, it passes through another node, the atrioventricular node. Oh, which... Wow, yeah. Okay, cool. So you got two nodes uh-huh. that are doing this, and they're doing it in a very precise rhythm mm-hmm. so that it creates this uh, contraction that, that then pumps the blood through the rest of the body. Oh, right. And if that sinoatrial node isn't working properly, the atrioventricular node can take over for it, but it's a, it's, it's a weaker force. So it's not as efficient. It's not as efficient. It's only going to get you up to about 40 beats per minute, which, um, is, is why you're going to encounter that fatigue and breathlessness right. and stuff like that. Right. So you, you'll, you'll, you'll live, but you'll be getting but an poorly. increasingly poor condition. Sure. Right. Um, so what do pacemakers do? Pacemakers um, can can regulate that. They can help uh, slow the rhythm of a too fast heartbeat or help control an irregular or too fast rhythm. Oh, OK. Or so, too slow rhythm. Gotcha. Sorry. Gotcha. So they can they can monitor the the impulses and override it or, or pulses, I guess I should say, and override it so that it has a more regular heartbeat and keep someone at uh, an optimal Heartbeat range, right? Sure, and okay. uh, and if those if those two nodes are not communicating properly, uh, a pacemaker can help coordinate the electrical signals between them. I see. So if maybe the sinoatrial uh, nodes working just fine, but perhaps the the ventricular ones not, then this could help balance that. Balance that out, right? Sure. And it does this because, okay, so, so a pacemaker is essentially a very small generator hooked up to a battery in a computer. Okay. Again, very small battery and very small computer. Yeah, you ha- you have to be if Implantable. you want to have an implant. Yeah. Sure. Um, and wires are threaded from the pacemaker through a vein to the heart. Um, th- those wires being tipped with electrodes. Mm-hmm. And uh, the electrodes detect your heart's electrical activity and rhythm, and then send that information to the computer, which will monitor them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, it will direct the generator to fire whenever the signals go go wonky. All right. So what the computer is doing is looking for any irregularities and sure. then it addresses that. Right. OK. Right. Um, it can also record these signals for your doctor to upload and use to adjust your pacemaker um, using a wireless device. They don't have to do surgery on you in order right, to check right. it because they want to check it about quarterly. So that would be so, messy. So this is kind of like a, a very important version of a physical activity tracker. It's keeping data on the activity of your heart and letting exactly. your doctor know exactly what's going on. Right, right. Um, okay. in, in some cases, that onboard computer can even be accessed remotely via the interwebs. Oh, so... <laughs> For those of you who are privacy uh, worried about that kind of thing, the idea that your heart rate is being monitored remotely. Um, Maybe not I, for you. <laughs> I actually think I actually think it's super awesome. Like the idea that that uh, a doctor would have that level of granular 
information about a, a patient's health and and even be able to preemptively tell the patient, hey, I'm detecting some unusual uh, readings here. Could you come in so that we can make sure that you are in good shape? That, that you're in good shape and that it's not an equipment malfunction. Right. And, you know, obviously oh, that would be incredibly important. And if it were Especially something that for, happened, you know, I mean, there, there's some some people have pacemakers who are who are basically doing OK. It's more precautionary. Sure. And but there are other very life threatening ventricular diseases. Sure. That, you know, sure. Yeah, um, some models called rate responsive models will actually adjust to your heart rate to your changes in activity. Gotcha. Like, which again makes sense for example, like if you're exerting yourself, then you might need a different heart rate than if you were at rest. And uh, that's why I, I remember older pacemakers. That was a real challenge because oh, they would they would keep a very steady heart rate, which was great. But, but it if meant you break into a brisk jog, then yeah, you, your heart wouldn't be able to to keep up. And like the it, and the computer would start misfiring. Right. So that was a real issue. Sure. Sure. So um, so there are three basic types of pacemakers. You've got single chamber, which carry impulses from the generator to the heart's right ventricle. Mm-hmm. Dual chamber, which carry those impulses to the right ventricle and the right atrium mm-hmm. um, and, and also help coordinate the timing between the two. And then you've got biventricular, uh, which which carry those impulses to the right atrium and both ventricles. Gotcha. Helping coordinate all of the signals. And uh, th- those are, yeah, for, for as you can imagine, those those are increasing in seriousness. Right, right. Obviously, because uh, you're talking about having to take over more and more of the heart's activity. Mm-hmm. There are all there are also related um, uh, implantable cardioverter. Cardioverter. Did I say that right? Yep. Yes. Implantable cardioverter defibrillators, which um, use not only those low energy impulses that a regular pacemaker would use, but also um, high high energy impulses when necessary to treat very life threatening arrhythmias. Yeah. yeah. So like if you're, for example, there, I'll I'll talk about some of the early ones of this, but there are some devices that let's say that it detects that your heart, that maybe you're going into cardiac arrest, it can actually deliver a strong enough electrical impulse to possibly, you know, kickstart your heart going again. Right. So it ends up being like, uh, you know, if you guys have ever seen any medical procedural, you have obviously seen the person with the pads. Right. Yeah. Which like, they clear. usually use incorrectly, but yeah. that's okay. Yeah. Uh, the clear part's important, by the way. Yes. But uh, <laughs> now he's doing poorly from too much electric. Um, yeah, that's... Uh, this is something that's sort of an implantable device that does a similar thing, although it does it in a very precise way because it's delivering it directly to the heart. And, uh, and it, and not every pacemaker does this. Right. There's no, specific not at types all. of devices. Yeah. Um, they can also, like Jonathan said earlier, be temporary if you've just had, if you've just had a heart attack or a surgery or perhaps overdosed, uh, while, while the patient is in the hospital with these kinds of issues, they might have a temporary pacemaker. Yeah. Um, and of course the permanent ones, which is more what we've been talking about. Uh, I mean, they wouldn't implant a temporary one. Right. Yeah. In fact, uh, the earliest pacemakers are more like what you would see with a temporary pacemaker. I mean, far the temporary ones that we use now are far more sophisticated. Oh, of course. Orders of magnitude more sophisticated. But the idea is that you would have an external device that would be able, you know, anyone could monitor and and also uh, uh, be able to like a medical professional would be able to disconnect it once that was a viable option and wires would go into you. Which is kind of, you know, depending upon your level of comfort, a little squeaky. But I'm, um, I'm, I'm honestly pretty squeaked out by the entire wire through a vein thing. That's, yeah. Well, just wait till we talk about the history of pacemakers because oh, that's going to get really interesting. I'm glad you took that research. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So in, in the case of permanent 
pacemakers, um, uh, batteries and generators usually have to be replaced every um, five to 15 years, usually about six or seven. It's really the, the batteries start running down and they figure while we're performing surgery on you, we might as well change out the generator to make sure that it doesn't start running down too. Right, right. So that um, way it actually decreases the number of surgeries you would need over the lifetime, over your lifetime. Right, right? sure. Yeah, the lifetime of the product, lifetime aka of, of you. your lifetime. Yeah. Um, and the wires may eventually need to be replaced as well, but that's that's more case-to-case basis kind right. of thing. Now, we talked about in our electronics and FAA episode about electromagnetic interference and even discussed a little bit about how people with pacemakers need to be careful around uh, devices that emit EMI, which is pretty much anything that's electrical. Oh, right, right. And that's because like any electrical signal, the impulses sent by a pacemaker can be disrupted by an electromagnetic field. Yeah. So now, granted, in most cases, the the instructions you get are pretty... It's uh, pretty common sense. Yeah. I mean, it's stuff like don't don't lay down and put a laptop computer or a cell phone or over t- your heart. Yeah. You don't yeah. want to don't want to have like your cell phone in your shirt pocket, for example. Right. Right. You know, avoid brushing up next to uh, strong household appliances, industrial right. welders. Don't lay directly against the microwave as you wait for that sweet, sweet popcorn to be delivered to your hands. You know, keep keep it keep your generators your your larger than your heart generator generator at arm's length. Um, right. Don't use right. jackhammers. Yeah, that kind of that kind of thing. I never do, <laughs> and everyone thanks me. Yeah, so it's, uh, and it, and you know, I mean, things like metal detectors are are fine if they're you know, I it's you're supposed to tell security agents like, hey, I've got this pacemaker thing, please right, don't kill me, right, right, um, and yeah. and they will know how to deal with that. But. Yeah, so it's it's certainly one of those things that does mean you know you have to take that to into account it, in your but. lifestyle, sure, but it's also a development that has, like we said, uh, given. N- un- <laughs> A huge number of people uh, a chance at a, a a healthy life that otherwise they would not have. Absolutely. So it's it's phenomenal technology. We'll talk more about how we developed this technology over years and years of experimentation. Some of which enters into the Frankenstein mad scientist realm, and I can't wait to talk about it. But before we do, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Now let's get back to talking about pacemakers. Now, in this particular episode, we kind of divided up the the research a bit. So Lauren ended up looking a lot at how the heart works and how pacemakers tend to work. If you guys have ever listened to Ford Thinking, you know that I am the medical correspondent. Yeah, so, yes. yeah. We, we make her look at all the squicky stuff so we don't have to because uh, she likes squicky stuff like um although slime i would slime is really great guys yeah um uh although i would i would argue glancing through your notes here for the history that you actually got the uh the short end of the squick stick uh you know what this this also, is i want to never use the phrase squick stick again this is a this is entering into a realm that i actually relish i i cuz we're talking about a realm of scientific exploration that definitely goes on that mad scientist side of the scale i mean in that really cool kind of victorian era yeah this of- this is the same era where we saw things like mary shelley's frankenstein be published and so that's you know and and some of the stuff that was being talked about and discovered at this time plays into the narrative of that story although in a you know much more kind of literary way and not a scientific way sure but at any rate this is when we had people really thinking about uh, electricity and its effect on the human body and not just the human body as it turns out so you really to talk about the history of the pacemaker have to go all the way back to the mid 1700s that's wow. when 
That's when people started to experiment with what they called electrostimulation, using electricity to stimulate muscles. Uh, and in fact, by this time, they were looking at cardiac electrostimulation. So again, using electricity to stimulate the heart. This was all in animals at the time. Yeah. So they would find uh, recently dead animals or they would make an animal recently dead. And then they would use uh, some form of electricity to uh, use an electricity source to stimulate the animal's heart. The uh, electricity sources? Yeah, at the time they had they had Leyden jars and uh, voltaic piles, right? Or Le- peels, actually. You should say voltaic peels. Huh, it's I never it's knew actually that. named. Uh, it's well, because it's, it's French. After a person. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So peel is French, but it's voltaic peels or piles, if you prefer. Uh, both of which were were were. I mean, are batteries. They yeah. are viable batteries, but very dangerous. Yeah, and not particularly strong unless you make huge stacks, right? right? So these are predecessors to what we consider the modern battery. But uh, that was when there was a lot of experimentation going on. So they would use them to stimulate the cardiac nerves in animals in an attempt to resuscitate intact dead animals. And thus, as my notes say, infect the world with chipmunk zombies. Oh, no, uh, so there was a fellow named Luigi Galvani uh, who was credited with proposing electricity as the mechanism that causes our muscles to operate. Now, here's the story. Uh, this is very possibly apocryphal. But the the story, the legend goes, the legend goes. that Galvani was working on uh, on dissecting a little froggy okay. and uh, ended up ha- building up an electrostatic charge. And picked up a scalpel and touched the scalpel to the froggy and it discharged the electrostatic charge, which created the spark and made the froggy's leg twitch. Thus, uh, Galvani began to think of electricity as being the means through which our muscles operate. He called it animal electricity as opposed to what was being called heat electricity. Okay. So he's, he thought that animal electricity was some sort of electrical type of fluid that would make Muscles move. Before then, it was well, this well, idea Leyden, of ballooning. Leyden, Leyden jars were still based on the principle that electricity was a fluid. Yeah. Isn't that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, so we're, we, you know, this is obviously this is the early days mm-hmm. of of learning about electricity. So, uh, at any rate, that that research led other people to start to uh, tinker around. Uh, one of those was William Hawes, H A W E S. He established a society in London called the Humane Society. But it's not the Humane Society the way we would think of it in the United States. You hear the Humane Society and you think, oh, that's an animal rescue. It's, right? it's not for adopting dogs and cats. No. no. This was a, a a group that was dedicated to, um, well, salvaging people who appear to be dead. This was a big concern at the time. Um, a lot of people, you know, we, we didn't really have the more precise scientific definitions. And, and even today, this is debatable of, of what is alive and what is dead. And we, you know, we didn't have heart rate monitors. It, it was, was a morbid time, really. Is it, what was. it was. It was a lot harder to tell. And so there was a huge fear of uh, getting buried alive. Yeah. So there was also a similar society at the time uh, in Par- Paris, Paris. Uh, I assume Par- Paris, France, not Paris, Texas. Eventually, the organization would become the Royal Humane Society of London. And okay. very early on during the society's days, uh, scientists began to explore electrostimulation as a way of resuscitating people who appear to have died and maybe who are not actually dead but could be revived. So 1788, a guy named Charles Kite writes uh, a paper titled An Essay Upon the Recovery of the Apparently Dead, which is already my favorite title of a 
of a paper since uh, since Moore wrote cramming more components on integrated circuits. Um, I love I love I love these titles. They're be- this is the best kind of research, really. So according to the essay, Kite used electrostimulation to treat a three year old child. She had fallen out of a window and appeared to be dead. They had called in an apothecary who was unable to do anything. Kite said that it was 20 minutes before he could arrive to provide some sort of electrostimulation to the child's heart. He used, uh, his, uh, he used essentially electrodes to, to deliver a gentle electrical shock to various parts of the child's body, eventually settling on the thorax or chest, really, to, uh, and found that she, he, he got a pulse when he did that. And claimed that the child woke up, was very groggy and, uh, and, and confused about her surroundings, but that she eventually made a full recovery. Uh, what that tells me is that this story is probably either exaggerated or there are some big missing components because being dead for 20 minutes is being dead. Is, is dead. Yeah. You're not, you're not, you're not bouncing back from that really. No, no. Uh, but at any rate. It could be that, that no one at, the house at the time could find a heartbeat. Right. It could have been that she had a very weak pulse, sure. intermittent pulse even. So at any rate, uh, that's the story from 1788. In 1796, a couple of Danish scientists published a paper that was titled Life-Saving Measures for Drowning Persons and Information of the Best Means by Which They Can Be Brought Back to Life. And that also included electrostimulation of the heart as a means of saving people. Uh, we're going to jump ahead. So there's a lot of people researching this. In 1820, Dr. DeSanctis in The Medical Guide described the reanimation chair. I didn't show you a picture of this yet, have I, Lauren? You did not, but You're I'm going already to get, concerned. You're going to get a chance to see it. We'll so, link it on social as well. The chair included uh, bellows, which were meant to force air into the person's lungs, a metallic tube inserted into the person's esophagus, and a voltaic peel or pile, depending upon how you want to pronounce it, attached at one end of the metal tube and the other end was to an electrode. The electrode was then touched to, quote, regions of the heart, the diaphragm and the stomach, end quote, to cause muscles to contract. If you look at this thing uh, or illustrations of this thing, I should say, I haven't seen a picture of one. I don't know if one was ever actually built, but the illustrations of what it was supposed to look like. Look like it came from Hostel or Saw or one of those (laughs) movies. It is absolutely terrifying Uh. to behold. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it makes a dentist chair look absolutely comforting by by comparison. Uh, 1828. Well, I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Experiments with electropuncture. This is where we're really getting into the fun stuff. So that is that is combining electrical stimulation with acupuncture. Yep. So you got a needle that you insert into the body of your your subject, and then you shoot electricity through it to subject, stimulate patient. Yeah. Well, hopefully animal. Yeah, Probably. Okay. It was mostly okay. animals. Sure. Uh, mostly dogs, actually. Uh, oh. yeah, I didn't want to dwell on that too much because I'm a, I love my doggies. Yeah. So, and in, anyway, it turned out, uh, the early experiments anyway, it turned out to be, <laughs> I'll use the word failure. <laughs> so, no Franken doggies from this particular early experimentation. However, other people would start to experiment with using insulated needles that could deliver an electrical shock. Um, to a specific to a specific point, mm-hmm. the point of the needle, in fact, and that would in fact be the basis for early pacemakers. Huh. Uh, they did discover that uh, 
by refining this process that they could stimulate activity in a heart that was undergoing cardiac arrest. And again, they were using animals. And essentially, in order to experiment, they would over-anesthetize animals in order to induce cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. So we would see more and more experiments between 1828 and 1930, which is the next date I have on my my list. I don't want to be too exhaustive with this. And also, they get pretty weird. And uh, yeah, when you start talking about getting cadavers from recent executions, it starts to get pretty grim. So I'm going to I'm going to skip over that. We skip over the entire uh, Victorian era. We skip over um, Jack the Ripper. Uh, this is the stuff you missed in history class. They cover all that kind of stuff. All right. So 1930. That's when a, a fellow by the name of Albert S. Hyman uh, develops and patents the artificial pacemaker. Wow. In 1930. Yeah. So this thing did not look like a pacemaker as you and I would would recognize if we were to see one which are which are large coin sized yeah. these days yeah they're they're in the grand scheme of medical devices they are tiny mm-hmm. uh this one was not tiny this was a hand crank who okay so you had a hand crank and it had wires cables essentially that ended in needles that could be inserted into a person and by turning the hand crank there was also a spring motor inside of it that turned a magneto which is a dc current generator so essentially what you're doing is you're turning – we've talked about inducing electricity to flow by using uh, – moving uh, a conductor through a fluctuating magnetic field. Mm-hmm. This is a way of doing that by hand. You turn the crank. Turn it's the it's crank turning it sure. through this magnetic field, and that's mm-hmm. inducing electricity to throw uh, – to flow, rather. And that ends up supplying the electricity needed for the pacemaker. The insulated needle would deliver the electric charge to the right atrium of the heart. And by March 1st, 1932, the pacemaker had been used 43 times – with a successful outcome in 14 cases, which is about a 33% success rate, which sounds incredibly low. But then keep in mind that the you know, essentially this was a this was an absolute right. last. It, yeah, this was last last ditch effort to try and uh, revive someone. So it wasn't like this. What these were not the type of pacemakers we've talked about in our episode where we we talked about the things that you would have in your in your chest for a prolonged period this was really meant this to revive someone yeah sure. so this is this is a little different they so call third, it pacemaker, so so 33% of patients saved is actually yeah better than 0% pretty rad that's, so yeah. uh, 1940s that's when they started to uh, engineers and doctors began to work on designing defibrillators which as we said can play a part in some types of, uh, of pacemakers that you can find today that are, it's kind of a combination device, really. Sure. 1959, uh, an elderly man who in the literature is called HN. They don't obviously identify people His because name, it's right? medical. Uh, but HN suffered heart ailments for several years, had, had heart attacks and other, uh, irregularities and became the recipient of a Tronic Products 902M battery operated pacemaker. Now, this was not an internal unit. It was not an implant in that sense. It, you, they did implant the electrodes so that they had contact with the heart, but the cables to the actual, um, device were external. Mm-hmm. And you would, you know, have to carry the, the pacemaker around with you. Mm-hmm. And it was held outside the body. You know, it could also detect spontaneous cardiac activity. It had, so it had a meter. Yeah, attached. it essentially had the ability to tell if something was going wrong. It wasn't necessarily able to respond to that dynamically, but it could at least warn a, a caregiver that sure. something something was happening. Um, everything was uh, was oh yeah, it worked all right. Uh, the one problem was that it, the area where the the electrodes would go in through the skin, essentially the needle would go in through the skin. 
um, was prone to minor infections. There was never like well, that's that's what you would expect from yeah. from I mean, and that's part of the reason why the drive to create implantable pacemakers right. exists. Right, because and, we, and we talked about you know the fact that in our piercing episode or our body modification episode, we talked about that there is a a uh, possibility of developing these kind of infections, and they may not be serious, it may not mm-hmm. be life threatening, but they can be problematic. And that was exactly what he had experienced. It wasn't an infection that was developing into sepsis, uh, but it was like he would have to have the area cleaned regularly so that he could clear out any infection. Uh, in late 1962, he underwent surgery for a pacemaker implant, but he never fully recovered. In fact, he never recovered from the surgical procedure. He died 20 days after the surgical procedure. So that was an unfortunate uh, tragedy there. But uh, he did have a uh, uh, lived for several years with this external pacemaker. Uh, in 1960, Dr. Robert Rubio implanted a pacemaker into a female patient, and that pacemaker was 52.5 millimeters in diameter, which is about two inches, uh, 17.5 millimeters thick, which is about 0.7 inches, so just over half an inch, and weighed 64.3 grams or 2.3 ounces or less than a quarter of a pound. Now, that one got power from two rechargeable nickel-cadmium batteries, which were charged through induction from an external flexible coil placed on the skin over the pacemaker. So this is the way some pacemakers are recharged today using a similar approach, although it's usually radio frequencies. But what we're, we're talking about wireless power here, right? Where you can induce this charging through, um, uh, again, your, your cre- it's all about magnetic fields and electricity is really what we get down to. Uh, so you would have to place this flexible coil directly over your heart in order to recharge the pacemaker or really directly over the pacemaker, wherever the pacemaker was located, uh, wherever the, you know, the battery was. Uh, the stimulated electrode for this was a platinum disc, so it was an expensive piece of medical technology. Uh, but sadly, the patient died nine and a half months after the surgery because she did develop an infection which turned into sepsis mm. uh, after the surgery. So the pacemaker was working, but the, the it was a side effect of the surgery. She unfortunately perished from that. Uh, so early implantable pacemakers varied widely in how long they could operate before requiring a recharge. So one of them would only go like eight hours and then you have to recharge it. That's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty rough. Uh, yeah. But there were others that could go weeks or even months before a recharge, even in the early days in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this also I mean, still today, how much how much your your pacemaker is uh, actually needing to to create a charge will make your battery life vary. Right. So in other words, in other words, if if it's only occasionally having to intervene, then you're recharging. You may not need to recharge it as frequently as someone where it's more active, more frequently. Um, So in the 1960s, that's when we started to see the cardiac stimulator defibrillators, which we kind of talked about. It's under it's called something else today, but same sort of idea, the the device that can uh, detect when a heartbeat stops and then try to restart it with a controlled electrical burst to the heart. Uh, the early versions of that were also not implantable. They were external as well. But now we've got implantable ones that are incorporated with sort of pacemaker technology. Um, now, as far as the future goes, because from the 1960s on to the present, it was really refining that process. Mm-hmm. It's just about so, a, a miniaturization yep. and, um, and exactly, improvements in electrical stimulation. Yep, yep. Making sure that we were getting more precise and smaller. Those are really the trends. So anything from 1960s on is more about refining that that design. Uh, 
talking about the future, miniaturization is going to continue to be a factor. In fact, there are companies right now that are trying to create pacemakers that are about the size of a pill. Oh, wow. So that tiny. So the reason why you want this is not just because it, it, it takes up less space in the patient. Really, it's because the surgical procedures become less invasive. It's less damage to the body, less chance for infection, uh, makes it uh, less chance for something to go wrong because mm-hmm. you're it's just it's just a smaller surgical procedure. So that's really where we're seeing the future come in as far as uh, pacemakers are concerned. And now uh, that kind of wraps up our, our episode. We we really interested in this topic. It was kind of it's it's always fun for us to take a specific technology and explain how it works and really where it came from. We love doing that. Uh, I mean, we obviously we love doing things like covering various companies as well. Uh, not to mention the fact that we have covered many, many, many personalities in technology. But uh, if you guys want to hear us do more of this sort of thing, then I recommend you write in and let us know. So send us a message. You can write us an email. That address is techstuffatdiscovery.com, or you can find us on Tumblr or Facebook or Twitter with the handle techstuffhsw. And who knows, you know, we may take your, your, uh, Suggestion. This suggestion, by the way, came to us from a listener right. on Facebook from Peter. So, Peter, I hope you enjoyed this episode about pacemakers. Uh, I hope you were not asking about Jerry and the Pacemakers, because that's a band, and they did Fairy Cross the Mercy, which is a great song, but not what we covered. So hopefully we met your expectations. Let us know if we didn't. And, uh, guys, that wraps this up. We will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 